14, the arrest and betrayal of Jesus Christ. Here now is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to, him, to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's go to God in prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall like fire upon us. I pray that you would enliven our hearts, that we may comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of your love for us in Christ. Lord, show us your glory. Speak, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, we were spending the, some time a couple of weekends ago with our friends in North Carolina, as is our custom, we were doing puzzles together. All the kids gathered around the tables to do puzzles together, and I did not participate. And I did not participate because I have a love-hate relationship with puzzles. Puzzles can be really fun, but they can also be really, really frustrating, you spend like 90% of your time looking for two tiny little pieces that fit together, all for that sweet, satisfying moment when all the pieces come together and the truth is revealed. The Bible calls this shalom. Shalom is what happens when all the pieces finally come together. Shalom is the feeling you feel when you finally solve the puzzle. Shalom is the aha moment, the moment where faith becomes sight. Shalom is the place 
where revelation meets inspiration as a reward for your perspiration. Shalom is the glory of God revealed to us in the person of his son, Jesus. In other words, puzzles are hard, but puzzles are worth it. This morning, we're going to solve a puzzle together. It's a puzzle that begins with a perplexing question, whom do you seek? You'll notice that Jesus asked that question twice in this story. First in verse 4, and then in verse 7. He asked it twice in spite of the fact that he already knew the answer to the question. Verse 4. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, why would he ask them, Whom do you seek, if he already knew the answer to the question? He Clearly, he knew that Judas Iscariot and all the soldiers, the Romans and the Jews who were sent by the leaders, had all come to arrest him in the garden. He knew they were looking for them. Maybe the answer is that he wasn't really asking them as much as he was asking us. Maybe he wants us to ask, church, whom do you seek? You say Jesus of Nazareth. They said Jesus of Nazareth. But is that really true? Would you, brothers and sisters, be happy and content and joyful with, with wealth and health and fame and success and four-star dining experiences and first-class airfare without Jesus? What, how often do you pray? How often do you worship Are you in fellowship with other Christians? Are you on mission to reach the world when hard times come, perhaps in the form of 200 Roman soldiers, perhaps in the form of sickness or death or job loss or anxiety or fear or rejection? Are you going to stay with me or are you going to run away? Whom do you seek? Jesus the teacher, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the moral example, Jesus the career advisor, or Jesus the king, Jesus the servant, Jesus the second Adam, Jesus the light of the world. Who is Jesus and how do we know? Look at the clues. Look at the puzzle pieces. They're scattered throughout this story. And Jesus is just waiting for us to put them together. Because when we put them together, shalom, beauty and glory and peace. When we put them together, we'll know and we'll be known When we put them together, our lives will never be the same. And so, my question to you is, are you ready to solve the puzzle? Are you ready to put the pieces together? 
Now, normally, I would give you a detailed description of exactly where we're going and exactly how we're going to get there, but we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time together sorting out the puzzle pieces. You all know you got to sort the pieces out, right? you got to put the edges with the edges and the blues with the blues and the greens with the greens. Otherwise, you'll be working on that thing forever. So this morning... Together, we're going to walk through the passage verse by verse, sorting out the pieces. We're going to identify the first piece and the second piece, and then we're going to start to click those pieces together, connecting them piece by piece until a picture of Jesus emerges. How many pieces? I found five. That's a good Calvinist number, is it not? (laughs) Five puzzle pieces that show us who the real Jesus really is. Whom do you seek? And why does it matter? Let's take a closer look. Our first puzzle piece is the garden. The garden. Verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples Entered. Now, why the garden? What, what is significant about the garden? Well, on a purely hu- a human level, it was a familiar place. Jesus used to go there all the time with his disciples. We, spect, we suspect that it was an olive garden, but not the kind with unlimited breadsticks, a different kind of olive garden. Uh, Matthew and Mark tell us that it was called the Garden of Gethsemane, and the word Gethsemane means olive press. So it wasn't a kind of garden where they have you know, little plants on the ground like sunflowers and things. It was really more of an orchard since olives grow on olive trees. So they entered this orchard. We suspect that it was a walled orchard. Probably this was a cash crop for whoever owned the olive orchard. So they walked into this olive orchard, the Garden of Gethsemane, surrounded by walls. Jesus and his disciples. Now let's do a little bit digging of digging. Can you think of any other significant garden that is mentioned in the Bible? Now you're you're laughing probably because like me, you thought of the most significant garden that there is, which is the garden of Eden. Now what happened there? Creation, the fall, the promise of redemption, and the hope of restoration. We are hoping that one day God will restore the world so that we are back in a place like the Garden of Eden again, a place where there's no more sin or death or frustration at all. That's, that's our hope. Now, God had created Adam and Eve in his image, in his likeness, in order to work and attend the garden. They were to be God's faithful people in the Garden of Eden. But, of course, if you know the story, they failed to do it. Satan, taking the form of a serpent, tempted Eve, and she, motivated by a desire to be like God, knowing good and evil, ate the forbidden fruit. She did the one thing that God had told Adam and Eve not to do. Eve offered the fruit to Adam. Adam, of course, ate the forbidden fruit too. And in that very moment, sin and death entered the world. As the Puritans used to say, in Adam's fall, sinned we all. 
his sin was passed down to us like the world's least wanted inheritance. And so we, as the sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters of Adam and Eve, are are infected with a sin nature that causes us to commit actual sins, sins that are commensurate with the sins that Adam and Eve committed in rebellion against God. Now, with all that as background, fast forward to John 18. Where are we? We're back in the garden. But instead of the first Adam, the focus of the text is on the second Adam, Jesus Christ. John is inviting us to compare and to contrast the first Adam, who brought sin and death into the world, with the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who brought righteousness and life into the world. He wants us to see those two figures in relief. One, the source of our grief and our misery. One, the source of our joy and our hope. Kent Hughes put it like this, very helpful. He wrote, The first Adam began life in a garden. The second Adam came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior overcame sin. In Eden, Adam fell, in Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, our Lord boldly presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, it was sheathed. Here's how the, the Apostle Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes, For as by a man Adam came death, by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second Adam is from heaven. Whom do you seek? Jesus, the second Adam, who would reverse the curse by living a godly, faithful life, the life that Adam failed to live, so that we, his children, might come back to the garden, come back to the place where we enjoy beautiful, everlasting fellowship with our Creator God, the Maker of heaven and earth. Second puzzle piece the lanterns and the torches and the weapons. Verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, a little bit of background. About 200 soldiers came to arrest Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. That's a conservative guess. The Greek word that we translate band, spira, as in a band of soldiers, usually indicates between 200 and 300 men. Now, it could be technically as high as 600 men, but that's a lot of people to fit into a single olive garden, even with the free breadsticks. 
I'm going to just keep making that joke until somebody laughs, okay? Because that's the kind of joke I would make with my family, and when you're at Pinewoods, when you're here, you're family. Hey, they just keep coming, folks. But I digress. Probably closer to 200 people. Now, just think about the absurdity of that. 200 trained killers have come into this simple little walled olive garden. There's no, there's no place for the people to even escape to arrest a carpenter, a tax collector, a couple of fishermen, some you know, working class guys. It's almost as if Satan realized that he was coming that night to take hold of the Son of God. Now, before we moved on to the, the torches and the weapons, have you ever, ever felt like you were attacked by Satan and the powers of darkness? Have you, have you ever felt just an oppression? I've felt that. There's been times in my life where I've felt it in, in almost like a tangible way, like you could almost feel it in the air of the room, this sort of sense of darkness and evil. Do you ever look at the church and, and, and your fellow uh, servants and your fellow disciples and think, the gates of hell won't prevail against this? <laughs> against, against us? Martin Luther, the great reformer, captures the confidence that this scene gives us as God's people when he wrote this in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. You can almost picture Jesus and the disciples in the garden, can you not? We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Can you picture all those mighty soldiers falling to the ground like dominoes at one little word spoken by the word of God, Jesus Christ? Satan's weapons, his deceit, his treachery, his malice, his hatred are nothing compared to Jesus the living word of God. Now, why were the, the men carrying torches that night? Again, on a purely human level, they were carrying torches because it was nighttime and they wanted to see. But remember, we're looking for puzzle pieces. We're looking for little clues in this story that answer the question, whom do you seek? Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 8? He said, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Judas, and, and the, uh, Judas Iscariot and the soldiers that were with him were literally walking in darkness. But they were also spiritually walking in darkness because they had rejected Jesus, who is the light of of the world. They had replaced, Judas especially, had replaced the light of the world with tiny little torches of their own making. Almost like walking with, with 
a little tiny flashlight at the brightest time of the day. It's, it's unbelievable. This is the blind leading the blind. They're squinting and they're straining in the darkness to see the light of the world who brings enlightenment to everyone who believes. How often in our own pursuit of wisdom and enlightenment and knowledge and understanding do we completely ignore the light of the world? We walk around with little uh, torches, little flashlights of understanding with our backs turned to Jesus. Now, why the weapons? Again, on a purely human level, they were looking for a, a fight. They thought maybe this little band of disciples will resist us. Maybe we'll have to use force to, to arrest them. And in their defense, they weren't totally wrong. Apparently, Peter had his concealed carry license. Um, because later in this story, he goes for a headshot on poor Malchus. And uh, thankfully for Malchus... He missed and uh, just chopped off his ear, which is a, sort of a, a hollow consolation, is it not? I mean, if you, how was your day today? Well, I didn't die, lost an ear, but, you know, it's, it's not exactly the best thing that can happen, but considering the alternative, probably okay. Now, who should be armed in this story? If anyone in this story should be armed, who should it be? I'll give you a hint. He's outnumbered 200 to 1. Who needs something to even the odds? It's Jesus. But he wasn't. Why? Because he did not come to take the lives of his enemies. He came to give his life for his enemies. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah weaves these two themes together of, of peace and light. I, I think he's predicting what would happen to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's too perfect. Isaiah 2, verses 4 and 5. He, the Lord God, shall judge between the nations and shall dis decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. My friends, if you open your eyes, you will see that there is a lot of darkness in our world. There, there is literal war being fought in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. There is confusion about gender and sexuality. There's confusion about who God is and who we are and how our lives are woven together into his plan. And yet Jesus comes as the light of the world and the Prince of Peace. Whom do you seek? Do you seek the peacemaker? Do you seek the light of the world who shone the light of salvation into the darkness, opening our eyes so that we might see, so that we might have the light of joy and hope and forgiveness and peace? That's the second puzzle piece. Here's the third. The name. 
the name. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? That's the question. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, I, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. That little phrase, just three words in English, I am he, is actually two words in Greek, ego a mean, in me, literally, I am. In, in Hebrew, it's translated Yahweh. When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and said, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may go and worship me. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? I can't go in my own name. Who am I? I'm Moses. Who am I to demand such things from the king? And God said to them, Go and say to Pharaoh, I am has sent me to you. He reveals his covenant name, Yahweh, the great I am. Now, do you remember what Jesus told the religious leaders in John chapter 8? Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. They totally understood that he was saying, I am Yahweh, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, which is why they picked up stones and attempted unsuccessfully to stone him to death, because he was taking the divine name to himself. So what does that name mean? I am what does it mean when Jesus takes that name to himself? Well, Jesus is saying, I am eternal. I have no beginning and I have no end. Not only do I exist, my name is existence. I am the foundation of your existence. To quote a book I read this week, all things all persons depend entirely, every second, in their being on him. Now, do you understand how radical of a claim that is? See, every other religion that we have says something like this. I will follow me and I will show you the way to God. I will give you the path. I will give you the steps. I will show you how to pray, and I will show you how to live and wash. I will show you where to go. There are five pillars. There's, there's the eight truths. And if you follow these things, you will have peace with God. Jesus says something entirely different. Jesus says, I am God. Follow me. Either I am your everything, or I am nothing, whom do you seek? A Sunday morning God? A God who literally lives in this building 
and doesn't really care what you do from uh, the time that you leave until the time that you come back next week? Is that who you seek? Or do you seek the great I am? Are you trying to fit a little bit of Jesus into your schedule? Or are you attempting to revolve your entire life around him? Jesus is the name above all names. Ego me, I am he, Yahweh. Fourth puzzle piece, the fall. Verse 6, when Jesus said to the soldiers, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now what happened? Why did these guys all of a sudden just fall to the ground? These Roman soldiers were big, they were strong, again, they were trained killers, but try standing on Pensacola Beach in the middle of a hurricane. Try standing in the middle of a field as the tornado is descending upon you. See if you can hold your ground. Absolutely impossible. Over and over again in the Bible, when sinful human beings like us have an encounter with the living God, they fall down. It happened to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. He met the living God. He fell down. It happened to the prophet Isaiah. He met the living God. He saw him high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, and he fell. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the glory of God. See, getting close to Jesus, apart from grace, apart from mercy, without repentance, without faith, without, ad- without adoption, is a very traumatic thing. It exposes us. It exposes all of our weakness, all of our self-centeredness, all of our motives, all of our idols, all the fragile little things that we use to make a name for ourselves. Think of the, the folks who built the Tower of Babel. We'll make a name for ourselves. Jesus levels it to the ground. He destroys it, not because he wants to hurt us, but because he wants to help us. Jesus, the great physician, applies the scalpel to us, not in order to wound us, but in order that through him we might be healed. All the things that we, that we hold up and bank our life upon are shattered in the presence of the king. When we stand in the presence of God, we quickly discover that he is God and we are not. This is the great, great problem, the great problem for all human beings. We cannot stand in the presence of a holy God without completely coming apart, without disintegrating. And so what do we do? Fifth puzzle piece, the cup. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter decided to take things into his own hands. He said, these guys are never going to arrest you, Jesus. 
If anything, we'll die for you. My friends, that is the opposite of the gospel. The opposite of the gospel is, we will die for you, Lord God. The gospel is, God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to rise again so that we might have hope. Now, a quick aside, since I'm sure many of you were wondering, at least if you're like me, it's possible that Peter was aiming to uh, for cut off Malchus's ear, kind of like the guy in the PG-rated action movie who only shoots guys in the legs, you know that guy? But it's more likely that he was aiming for the kill shot and he just missed. Now, we can ask him in heaven, and uh, probably Malchus too, since I think Malchus being the last person that Jesus healed before going to the cross, probably became a Christian. In fact, I think that there's a lot in this text that indicates that Malchus was the one who was the source of this story. Which ear did he cut off? The right ear. Do you know who knows that? The guy whose right ear was cut off. (laughs) We think Malchus was the source of this story. We'll ask him in heaven, but I digress. Either way, at this point in the story, Peter was totally opposed to Jesus' plan. Jesus had been saying probably for the better part of three years that he would go to the cross, that he would die there on the cross, that he would rise again. Jesus was going to drink the cup, which in the Old Testament imagery is a sign or a symbol of the wrath of God. The cup is the cup of judgment. The cup is what Jesus' enemies will drink on the last day. It is the cup of retribution and justice. All of us should, as sinful people, drink this cup. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Some of us have betrayed Jesus in very flagrant ways, just like Judas Iscariot did. Some of us have betrayed Jesus in kind of misguided ways like Peter did. Some of us are like the rest of the apostles, passive. We see sin and injustice and blasphemy and immorality. We just sit back. We don't say a word. We run and hide. But Jesus said, I'm drinking the cup. I'm drinking the cup of God's wrath. I'm drinking your cup on the cross. On the cross, all the sin that should have fallen on us as rebels against God's will instead fell on Jesus. One more quote. Secularism says there is no judgment day and so all these injustices are never going to be rectified. All we are is dust in the wind. We die, we cease to exist, the end. Now, traditional religion says there will be a judgment day. The judge will be here, so you did better be a good person. The gospel says there's going to be a judgment day, but the judge came to earth and was judged in our place. Jesus Christ is the judge who was judged. Why? In a word, love. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. 
This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Whom do you seek? Are you seeking the judge who was judged? The cup drinker? The wrath taker? The God who suffered in our place? So that we might live. Now those are the puzzle pieces. The garden. We got the, the lamps and the weapons. We got the name. Ego I me. I am. The fall. The cup. Are you starting to see the big picture? Whom do you seek? Do you seek the real Jesus? The son of the living God. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord our God. We thank you for your word. We thank you that our seeking will be rewarded. For you, Lord God, have come by your spirit to seek and save the lost. I thank you, Lord God, that you have given us such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. I pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed by his glory and that we might love others as you have loved us. Hear our prayer for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, for his glory. Amen.